So we're continuing that, uh, you know, what in the world study. And uh, we're back to our This Week in Woke. So we're going to see what's creeping up over the edge this week. And I'm telling you, it is, it is hard to keep up with, with this, with the uh, corny B-movie monsters that are making their way to shore. Yeah. So this week in Woke. Okay, um, so we're, we're doing this so that we keep an eye on the, the worldview around us that is shaping our world, shaping our culture, shaping the news, shaping education, shaping our neighbors so that we can make sense of it, see it, understand it, notice it when it shows up, and continue to learn how to respond and react as followers of Jesus Christ. And then we're making our way through significant sections of the book of Ezekiel because I think there's a lot going on in Ezekiel that is incredibly important and relevant for us today. To hear how God speaks to Ezekiel about what's going on with his people in Jerusalem and in exile and what the presence of God is doing and so forth. So that's why we're doing things the way that we're doing them on Tuesday nights. But uh, some stuff for you here on This Week in Woke. Um, this, this was, I don't know, this is out of an online publication called The Christian Century. The Christian Century is, is very definitely um, a left-of-center theological publication. So you're going to find all kinds of interesting things on their website. Uh, this was an interesting one lately. When localism becomes nationalism at the farmer's market, I found something I didn't expect, white supremacists. Right, So the argument of this article is that more and more people who are bringing their produce to sell at farmers' markets are, in fact, white supremacists. So here's part of what she says. Farmers' markets across the nation and even abroad have in recent years begun to attract white supremacist groups. You read that sentence... And part of your brain goes, so the last time I was at a farmer's market, I don't remember seeing a Nazi flag, um, but I'm sure they were there somewhere. But we're also remembering that this is how vocabulary works in the woke world. They strip a phrase like that of what could be useful meaning. If you could actually label something where someone is white supremacist, they pull that meaning out of it and they refill it with their meaning. So that phrase doesn't mean the same to them as it does to other people. And so now apparently farmer's markets are just full of white supremacists. You gotta be really careful whose kale you buy because who knows what it's ha what's happening. Weil, <clears throat> Kelly Weil reported at the Daily Beast that the far, I just, I don't know, I just love, I just love this stuff because it's just, it's sophomoric. The far right's love of the markets plays into a larger fascist talking point that idealizes pastoral life and demonizes degenerate urban living. Just listen to how all these, all these phrases are just thrown together intended to make you think that if you are not woke and you bring produce to a farmer's market, you're playing into a larger white supremacist talking point. The contrast attempts to cast white supremacist supremacy as the purer alternative. So you read through the article. 
She has one piece of anecdotal evidence of someone who apparently was a Nazi at some farmer's market in the Midwest somewhere, and they got kicked out of the farmer's market. It's just anecdotal evidence. But the thrust of the article has everything to do with who you voted for. And if you vote on the right end of the spectrum, if you are not woke enough, you are automatically in the camp of white supremacist. So we saw some of this last week with the denial of Darwinism is now the brand new white supremacy. So it's, it's just this term that means anything you want it to mean and you use it to demonize anybody who votes differently than you do, has a different political ideology than you do. So she lists no white supremacist groups, but she lists plenty of people who voted differently than she did. So that's who the white supremacists are. What, yeah, now hold, hold. Yeah, hold your horses, racist. Yeah. Yes, so in the Soviet Union and China, Eric is absolutely right. One of the ideals was the peasant farmer. Um, it didn't, you know, I, I mean, forget the fact that Stalin killed tens of millions of peasant farmers or Chairman Mao killed tens of millions of peasant farmers. That became their ideal is the person who was going to work for the state out in the fields producing bread and producing rice. And now we've just got this completely convoluted notion Right, that if you're bringing carrots to the farmer's market and you didn't vote for Biden, um, you're a white supremacist. You've got to be careful. Those, those vegetables grown by white supremacists showing up at the farmer's market. So what do you do with stuff like this? You continue to do the kinds of things that we're talking about. You just deny the premise. You just refuse to accept the definition, the assumed definition of phrases like this. Prove it, Right? You just refuse to accept this brand new definition of this term, and you say that term actually has a meaning, and it has a useful meaning, but it's not what you say it means, right? So I'm going to go to the farmer's market, and I'm going to enjoy. I'm not going to enjoy buying kale. Nobody should enjoy buying kale. But buy your local produce. No, that's right. Nazi kale is even worse than normal kale. Who knows what happens next, right? So that, that was an actual pin that um, someone had made. And so they would, they would spread that around the farmer's markets where they lived. Um, and, you know, that's not at a stand where there's an actual Nazi flag. That's just at a stand where you've got a white local farmer who probably didn't vote left, right? So the woke world just continues and continues. So I ran across this last week um, a handful of articles about the same topic. And you can only find, or at least I could only find, articles on this topic outside of U.S. media. So this comes from The Spectator. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a British news outlet. And there's a lot of these sorts of European or British news outlets that have this kind of information. So after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, these kinds of articles are starting to come out. Uh, so the question is, did gender studies lose Afghanistan? How Ivy League diplomats sought to remake Afghanistan in Harvard's image. 
So here's part of what the author says here. So alongside the billions for bombs went hundreds of millions for gender studies in Afghanistan. According to U.S. government records, reports, 787 million was spent on gender programs in Afghanistan. But that substantially understates the actual total since gender goals were folded into practically every undertaking America made in the country. So it turns out that for a while now, especially the work of the State Department, everything they did in Afghanistan trying to, you know, rebuild villages and rebuild parliament and, you know, on and on, came with not just gender goals but with the LGBTQ agenda, right? So all of this money is being poured into that agenda, being put into Afghanistan. The article goes on to note, according to a USAID observer, the gender ideology included in American aid routinely caused rebellions out in the provinces, directly causing the instability America was supposed, supposedly fighting. To get Afghanistan's parliament to endorse the women's rights measures it wanted, America resorted to bribing them. And there was a link there about how the bribing worked. Soon, bribery became the norm for getting anything done in parliament. So it wasn't just a Western vision of life, a Western de liberal democracy that, you know, was trying to be sort of built in Afghanistan. It turns out it was Western sexual decadence, um, not just women's rights, but the LGBTQ agenda that was being pushed in Afghanistan um, with U.S. dollars and so forth and actually causing trouble inside of Afghanistan. So I had heard this, and I went, I did a little bit of research. Um, I, I learned something this last week. I had no clue was true. So the, um, the president of Afghanistan, when we withdrew from Afghanistan, you know, he split really quick. His name was Ash Ashraf Ghani. Did you know where Ashraf Ghani came from? He was a member of the D.C. Swamp. He didn't live in Afghanistan, he was Afghani, but he ran a large nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. when he was tapped to become the president of Afghanistan. Both of his sons are American citizens in the Northeast. One of them helped to run Pete Buttigieg's campaign when he ran for president and is still being paid by at least one think tank inside of D.C. So Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, came straight out of the Northeast D.C. swamp, Ivy League, woke kind of world. You know, so we don't hear those things until someone just sort of mentions it, and then all of a sudden you, you, you look at it and go, oh, so that's his background. That's where he came from. The Russian embassy reported that when he fled, he fled with four cars and one helicopter, all of them filled with cash. So that Ashraf Ghani, that's what happened to him. Keeping on this, um, this beautiful theme, this beautiful theme, <clears throat> in Texas, reproductive freedom congregations catch on as new abortion law looms. So this was reported both in the Washington Post and an organization called Religion News. It's just a, a Religion News is just a, it's just that. It's just a news site on a various and a broad set of religious issues and so forth. But the, um, the Texas law that went into effect a few days ago, I think it was Midnight Friday, something, something like that, um, that essentially made abortion after six weeks illegal or at least reportable to the state, 
the Supreme Court had refused an injunction and then late that night, uh, you know, allowed the, the law to go into effect and ref just openly refused the injunctions to actually stop the law. So this law goes into effect and just the explosion over the last few days over this issue and, you know, you know uh, everything that comes with the pro-choice movement and so forth. So part of it is happening inside of churches. Now, um, churches through the years, some of them have chosen to be sanctuary congregations for immigrants. Um, actually, physically, if you can make it inside of that Catholic parish, that Catholic church, or whatever the case is, then you've received sanctuary from, you know, being deported or from ICE or something like that. They now, these, these churches are considering themselves sanctuary for reproductive rights. So now several churches, and as of now, several dozen churches are trained and are training themselves to become sanctuary congregations for reproductive rights. So here's how it got reported. These churches are designated as reproductive freedom congregations. And in order to claim this label, faith leaders go through a months-long process to not only learn about reproductive health care, but also how to advocate for better access to services that include contraception, abortion, prenatal and pregnancy care, and comprehensive sex education. Spearheaded by a movement of faith leaders known as Just Texas. And you got to love these turns of phrases. They don't mean only Texas. They mean justice in Texas. Just Texas, Faith Voices for Reproductive Justice. Pastors are trained on how to talk about reproductive health from the pulpit. So we take our point of view, our politics, whatever the case is, and we just inject it straight into the veins of the pastors who are into this. To earn this designation, congregations have also voted to affirm a set of principles agreeing that they will trust and respect women and let it be known here that we don't do that here, okay? <laughs> just to be clear, you guys, hopefully you understand my sense of humor by now. Trust and respect women and that, access, and that access to reproductive health services is a moral and social good. And reproductive health services means places like Planned Parenthood. It means, by and large, abortion. The RFC designation is similarly modeled after churches that show support for LGBTQ people by declaring as open and affirming congregations. It's a way to help people. So you get this designation, um, you can promote yourself like this so that people know who you are and they can feel safe to come. It's a way to help people who wish to find and attend progressive churches that show they support women, Forbes told Religion News Service. Right? So all of this is an ethic. All of this is a moral point of view. All of this is a belief about how human beings work, um, the value of the unborn, and on and on. So this whole, th this whole thing comes as a package. And it's always enlightening. It should never be surprising that when you, when you read about reproductive freedom congregations somewhere in that mix, um, connected like a Siamese twin is every other one of these uh, sexual ideologies. So it's actually patterned after churches that have done the same training for LGBTQ kind of stuff, right? So it's all part of the same blob. It's all part of the same moral universe. So every woke agenda is wrapped up with all of the others. You don't get to pick one and not the others. 
And companies and organizations and Christian organizations are learning this. Some of them are learning it the hard way. If this ideology starts to make its way into an organization, it becomes very hard to either limit it or get rid of it. It just kind of comes in and just begins to sort of do what it does. It's a colonizing point of view, and we're seeing this, right? Again, this whole point of view is not about fixing some of the problems that you know, are sort of around the edges, the tattered edges of our culture. It's about changing the very core of why we think human beings exist. What we do, how we do it, all, it's, it's just about changing everything at the very core, and it cannot coexist with other ideologies. So it intends to colonize. It's, that's just how it's built, that is what it does. So this new woke morality, the more we see it, the more we talk about it, we need to understand that they take it as essential and necessary. Not one of several ideas at the table that will help us reach a positive conclusion. It's that if I get this idea on the table, you need to understand it's gonna be the only idea on the table. It's obtuse. It apparently doesn't understand how Afghanis think, right? It's obtuse. Um, it only sees one narrow version of a cultural reality and wants to take that and impose it on everybody else. And it is, it's colonialist, which is ironic because the claim about everybody else, what's that? The claim about everybody else is that Western liberalism is colonialist and how rotten are white colonialists when they've taken this ideology and foisted it upon villages in Afghanistan. I mean, I want to find some way to create that mind explosion emoji. <laughs> you know, every time I say stuff like this, it, you know, watch it happen. It is hardcore colonialist, right? What's that? I can't hear. All right. <laughs> Can Eric hear that? Because I, she calls it the Borg. Yes, <laughs> that's right. She does. It is. You you will be assimilated. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we we watch this. We keep our eyes on this stuff. And as much as we can kind of joke about it, I think is good enough to to do that. But you know, I think we understand how. This continues to seep its way into things. And if I can put a handful of things together for next week, we're going to dig into how this is happening in American education because there's a handful of things going on right now that are, as far as I can tell right now, are profoundly nefarious, profoundly nefarious. Um, and think pieces are being written now by um, educational leaders um, and by public thinkers um, that are pulled right out of the Communist Manifesto, and I don't mean that lightly. They're writing articles about how the best way forward for education is to treat children as property of the state. These are headlines that are being written in major newspapers, right? So that's just right out of Karl Marx and, and Communist Manifesto. There's just a lot, a lot going on. So we'll see what we can figure out for next week. So we continue to keep our eyes open and watch this kind of stuff going on around us so that we can see it and so that we can understand it. Um, but um, I'm jazzed as well to keep making our way through Ezekiel. Um, and so let's, let's do, let's open our Bibles, Ezekiel chapter 8. Um, 
We've, we've gone through eight. We've touched on nine. Ezekiel chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 are actually part of one vision that Ezekiel has. The Spirit picks up Ezekiel at the beginning of chapter 8, uh, shows him things going on inside of the temple of Jerusalem and the coming judgment of God and things that are happening with the glory of God and so forth. And that uh, makes its way all the way through Ezekiel chapter 11. And especially the last half of Ezekiel 11 is one of the beautiful pieces of this book. What God promises at the end of that chapter. We won't get to the end of that yet, but we'll get through at least some of the the warp and woof of of these four chapters. And it's always nice when you kind of read through one of these, sometimes difficult to understand Old Testament prophets. You think, okay, I don't have four separate chapters. I've got one vision here. It's been broken up for me. So when we read it, typically our brain sort of hits that reset button when we go to a new chapter. But we understand that this is all one great big vision. So as we went through chapter 8, just as a quick reminder of what happened, because chapter 8 is critically important. Um, Ezekiel is with some of the um, people from Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, A partial exile has taken place. So Ezekiel is in exile with some. Some of the people have been left in Jerusalem and Judea by Babylon. They will eventually, we know historically, be routed by Babylon entirely, and almost everybody else is going to be taken back out into exile. We're sort of in this in-between period where Ezekiel's in exile, but there's still a lot of people doing their thing in Jerusalem and Judea. So at the beginning of chapter 8, the Spirit of the Lord, and we read it, just literally picks up Ezekiel by his hair, and in the spirit, takes him to the temple in Jerusalem to see what's going on there. And what Ezekiel saw was all of this idolatry that God has been putting up with, that God has been watching. He comes in through the northern gate. Now, this is going to become important later on. He comes in through the northern gate, and he sees this idol of jealousy that's been set up. Um, And the language there is a statue Um, So a physical idol has been erected to another God. And it's an idol of jealousy because God wants his people's hearts and his people's hearts have now gone after this other God. But it's not just this one inside of the temple court. He goes into one of the side rooms and in the darkness they have covered the walls with all of these paintings and drawings of abominable images and all of these other gods and deities. And here they are, they're worshiping in this wall. And women are at the front porch and they're weeping with Tammuz, another god, or another god. And then you've got, at the end of chapter 8, all of these leading men in the city have their backs to the holy place and the holy of holies. And they are bowing down through the east gate and they're worshiping the sun. So God keeps saying, you see see this? I'm going to show you something worse. You saw that? I'm going to show you something even worse. So God is completely aware of all of this idolatry inside of his house. And so judgment is brewing. God's case is building inside of chapter 8. So then in chapter 9, Ezekiel sees the coming of the actual judgment um, of the city of Jerusalem and eventually of the nation of Judah as well. So we have to keep this in mind. We absolutely have to keep this in mind. What Ezekiel has shown is that people who are in the house of God 
are worshiping other gods. They've brought the worship of other gods into God's house, into God's ecclesia, into God's church. He's called apart ones, have not gathered to worship him. They've shown up inside of the building and they're worshiping other gods. So here's what happens in chapter 9. Uh, we read through this a couple weeks ago, so we'll kind of just sort of make sure we've, we've got this. Let's read through a little bit. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north. So this first place that Ezekiel came in where that idol of jealousy stands each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So God actually calls for a group of executioners, these divine beings whose job will be, in chapter 9, to spill as much blood as they possibly can. And by the end of chapter 9, this, this being in this linen garment is going to report back, and he's reporting back to the spirit that has moved Ezekiel. He says, I've done it. Now, this, this is part of what's interesting of, of, in what happens in Ezekiel 8, 9, 10, and 11. Um, we have God himself, God the Father, especially chapters 10 and 11, um, we get the image of God the Father. Um, we have the spirit continues to do things to Ezekiel and make commands and move Ezekiel back and forth. And then we've got this man clothed in pure white linen. Um, and there are, there, there are a lot of Old Testament scholars who say that there's actually a really good case for that man in linen being another appearance of part of the triune Godhead. So it appears that there's a case to be made that in this story of judgment and the purging of Judah and the moving of the glory of God, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit represented throughout this entire story. So the rest of chapter 9. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Through chapters 9 and 10, we keep our eyes on where the glory of God moves. The glory of God is supposed to be in the Holy of Holies, resting on those physical carved cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant or above the Ark of the Covenant. So Ezekiel begins to see the movement of God from those cherubim, the representations, the carved representations of the actual cherubim God's glory is moving from that now. He moves, you know, from the inner court to the threshold, to the front door. So God is literally taking steps out of his house. He's still here, but he's taking steps out of his house. Now, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, pass through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Much is made of that verse. The judgment begins at the house of the Lord or begin in my sanctuary. Chapter 8 tells us why. 
It's not just a random thought. It's that God is physically present in the temple while he watches his people worship other gods and rebel against him and turn their backs on him. So God says, here's where we start. I'm on my way out. And as I leave, you start shedding blood here. I mean, it's quite the moment. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck the city. And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell on my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. They think God is gone and God does not see, so they're worshiping gods who have no eyes and have no power. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. Behold, the man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist, brought back word, saying, It's done. I've done as you have commanded me. The man in linen was tasked with putting that mark on everybody's head. So go forth and put a mark on the foreheads of those who lament over the sins of my people. That was a big deal. Now, in the language itself, it's not just a random mark. It's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav, T-A-W, Tar Tav. Now, in the script, um, that, that sort of ancient Hebrew script, it would have looked like an X to us. As the script changes a little bit, it makes its way into the New Testament in the early church, they would have transliterated that with a T, so it looks a little bit like an actual cross. In the early church, that's how they would mark people's foreheads in important moments is with that cross. Not just because of the cross of Christ, but it actually comes out of this God is marking his people with his mark. So it's not just a random thing. It's actually um, a letter in the Hebrew alphabet, this, this kind of X and this T. Now, <clears throat> this... Um, this should make us think of this really important moment in the book of Revelation as Revelation is gearing up, as uh, we start making our way to places like Revelation 9 where things just go utterly bonkers with judgment and so forth. We get to this passage in Revelation chapter 7 where the judgment is gearing up and Revelation 7 is the story of the 144,000 in Israel and so forth. But here's part of that story in Revelation 7. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So it's the same story. Judgment's going to fall, but before it begins... We're going to seal all of the people of God. We're going to put this mark on their foreheads, and judgment will pass over them. Now, one of the reasons this was a big deal to us in the context of what we're talking about is this rising belief um, in this worldview, and especially inside of the church, of this corporate guilt that entire groups of people carry with them the actual guilt of some of the sins of some of their ancestors. And so entire groups of people are just stamped as guilty and there's nothing you can do about it. 
So when you actually start doing the biblical work, because a lot of these biblical passages are used to defend that point of view, when you start doing the biblical work, you see that large-scale national judgment is a thing. God does it. We read in Ezekiel 8, right? That's a real thing. But God has this way of preserving individual guilt and innocence before him through all of that. So we made this incredibly important distinction that through judgments like that, it can be the case that the people of God suffer from the guilt of the culture around them, but are not guilty for the culture around them. Does that make sense? So the culture around them suffers the judgment of God to one degree or another, and the righteous among them are in that culture. And that, you know, the consequences are the things that we deal with, that the people of God deal with all the time, but not guilty for, okay? There are even some other passages in Ezekiel that, um, that touch on that sort of thing. But here again, I think in our context, that kind of thought is really important. So God actually tells the six executioners, defile the house, the temple itself, the temple court, the holy place. Who knows? Does this make it way, its way into the holy, holy, actual bloodshed bodies on the ground? This is possible as a command from God because it's becoming just another building now. God has moved from here to the front door. And when we get to chapter 10, God actually gets up on his chariot and leaves. So now the temple is just a building covered in idolatrous graffiti. So that's all it is. So God actually gave this command to defile the house, the temple. And then Ezekiel exclaims in prayer to God, and he's going to do this a second time in this larger vision of chapters 8 through 11. Ezekiel is seeing the rebellion, and then he sees the judgment of God. Then Ezekiel does what prophets do. He laments for his people. Will you destroy even the remnant of your people? We've said this kind of thing before, and you see it with different prophets more explicitly than maybe some other prophets. But prophets will eventually prophesy through tears. You know, Ezekiel doesn't respond to this by going, let's get them. Someone hand me a battle axe because I'm ready. You know, he weeps for the judgment that he knows is just. But he says, God, were you going to eliminate even just, even the remnant of your people who are left? Now, in the story of remnant, and you may remember some of that that we went through a few weeks ago, that's such a big deal in Scripture. And here's Ezekiel. And he's processing what it means for the remnant of God's people to be left. Now think about this for a second. You have a divided nation. Ezekiel and others have been deported by Babylon. Ezekiel seems to have this, this perspective that those who are left in Jerusalem and Judea are the remnant. They're still at the temple. This is where the sacrifices are supposed to be taking place. This is where worship is supposed to be taking place. And he sees it's not at all happening. And that eventually this place is going to be filled with blood and these people are going to be gone. So Ezekiel reacts to the judgment in Jerusalem and Judea by saying, will even the remnant be gone? 
Well, you walk through the story of Remnant from Ezekiel's point of view, and then from Jeremiah's point of view, he is still in Jerusalem and Judea. And when God talks to Jeremiah, he talks about those in exile as if they are the ones who are the remnant. And it turns out that those who come back from exile are the remnant that God brings back. In the end, the remnant are those who just remain faithful to God. And we put all of these pieces together with Jeremiah's story. Jeremiah's there on the day when Jerusalem is destroyed and Babylon carries everybody else into exile except the rabble, right? It wasn't just the remnant. It was the worst of the, the remnant. It was the rabble. And Jeremiah stays with him. And that remnant's given another choice. Stay here, worship me, and I'll give you back the land. Don't trust in Egypt. And what did they do? They trusted in Egypt. And they, they wrap up Jeremiah and they take him to Egypt. And then the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is of Ezekiel's descendants, so to speak, making their way back into the promised land, rebuilding the temple, and on it goes. But here's this lament from the prophet. The judgment has the fall, but God, will you just preserve a remnant? And sure enough, God preserves a remnant. God, in fact, is preserving a remnant in exile while all of this is happening in Jerusalem and Judea. So let's take a look at Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10 um, if, you've, if you've read pieces of Ezekiel or if you even remember things like um, the, the, the vision that Ezekiel sees in chapter 1, that sort of overwhelming scene of the throne of God, you know, the sapphire, the firmament, the throne, the fire, the light, um, the living creatures with the different heads, the wheel within a wheel, all of this that Ezekiel sees in chapter 1 he sees again in Ezekiel chapter 10. So he repeats that sort of thing, but he repeats it twice for a purpose. This chapter is broken into two pieces. Uh, what I'm to give you there, verses 1 through 8 and the verses 9 through 22. And as you kind of read through and do your own study, you can kind of notice these things. Um, so Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 1 begins like this. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse. Um, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 9. And I looked, and behold, and there were four wheels beside. So that kind of phrasing gives us this clue. That, okay, we kind of have these two, this two-step process to what happens in Ezekiel chapter 10. So let's read through section number one in Ezekiel chapter 10 to see what he sees and what's going on. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, an appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. So there's our wheel within a wheel stuff. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house. When the man went in and a, and, and a cloud filled the inner court, and the glory of the Lord went out from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. 
And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. Then a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. So again and again, when Ezekiel sees these things, I, I love you know the way we read it in English. It's it's like Ezekiel keeps going. This is what I saw, and it was kind of like this. And then this was said, and then what I saw was kind of like this. This is the, this is the best I can do to describe what I'm seeing when it was like this and when it was like this. So a form like a hand, and the cherubim had faces that were like this, and they did this kind of thing, and the man clothed in linen did X, Y, and Z. But here now we have this throne of God surrounded by the four cherubim. In Ezekiel chapter 1, he calls them living creatures. The book of Revelation calls them living creatures as well. But here he uses the language of cherubim. So remember at the beginning of chapter 9, Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave the hand-carved cherubim in the Holy of Holies and go to the front door of the temple. Those hand-carved cherubim are this, this symbolic image of what's really going on in the presence of God. So that's what Ezekiel sees now. So what's really going on in the presence of God, these living creatures, the cherubim. They're outside the temple on the south side. Remember where that idol of idolatry was and where the executioners came in first. They came through the north temple. So the image is, this is where this is all beginning. This is what Ezekiel starts to see. And so on the other side of the temple now, we've got God's throne ready to go. Now, the wheel within a wheel thing is always this, you know, what the heck does a wheel within a wheel mean? What, what does it represent? And, and the way Ezekiel 1 speaks of it, you know, these wheels move and they only go in one direction where God wants them to go. And if he wants to go this direction, that's the direction that they go. So they have this kind of general imagery of the sovereignty and the providence of God. But they also have a much more pedestrian usage. The way this is set up is that God is at the front door and his chariot awaits. This is a divine chariot that has wheels on it that's going to take him away from the temple. So Ezekiel 10 is the story of the glory of God leaving the temple of God. <clears throat> but before it goes, inside of that divine chariot, between the cherubim, is this altar of coals, okay? And the man in linen is supposed to take these coals and then scatter them over the city before we go. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 13 tells us that this kind of thing was there. Ezekiel saw something like this. As for the likenesses of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And then we should be taken pretty quickly to Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God and the coals that were taken off the altar when he was there. And the context in which Isaiah sees these coals of fire is different. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah actually recognizes his sin in the presence of God. 
And remember, in Ezekiel, we've got the presence of God in the temple with all of this idolatrous sin happening in the presence of God. They don't see it. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So the burning coals are purifying. It's, it's the purifying fire of God. And if Christ has taken our sin, that's the image of Isaiah chapter 6, that God has actually atoned for the sin of Isaiah, whereas the people of God in Ezekiel chapter 10 have actually become identified with their sin. So when judgment falls, judgment falls upon them as well instead of falling on our Savior. The cherubim on the south side, right? We talked about that. God's glory, his kavod, the, the glorious weight of God continues to move its way outside of the temple. We get this phrase here um, in verse 5, and the, and the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer courts, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. That phrase in the Old Testament, God Almighty, is this name of God that, you know, if, if you were a Sandy Patty fan, it's El Shaddai. That's, uh, that's that phrase in the Old Testament, God Almighty. This is El Shaddai who is moving his way out of the house. All right, so the coals come in judgment. So this is what's happening in chapter 10. And then in verse, um, verse 9 here, the second half of what happens in chapter 10. And I looked, and behold, and there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherubim. The appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, um, their rims and their spokes and their wings and the wheels full of eyes all around. So, I mean, how on earth do you describe this, right? The wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of the cherub, and the second the face of a human face, the third face of a lion, and the fourth face as an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Chebar Canal. He's saying, this is chapter 1. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. That whole great big chariot that he described, he said, God has now moved onto that. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate. So now they're even further out to the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chebar Canal. And I knew that they were the cherubim. Each had the four faces, each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces of those appear of the appearance I had seen by the Chebar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. Now that the coals have been poured out on the city, it is time for the glory of God to leave. And that's what happens here in chapter 10. God leaves the house, gets on this wheeled, winged cherub thing, uh, makes his way to the east gate, and then he's just 
gone. Now, what happens in verses 18 and 19 is, is this image of God actually leaving. So God moves from the temple proper out to the east gate and then gone. And this is important. The glory of God leaves the temple for good. The glory of God, biblically speaking, does not come back to the temple. You know, this, this is an interesting arc through Scripture and the presence of God and what God's plan is. So in 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicates the finished temple, they perform all of these sacrifices. And early in 1 Kings chapter 8, before Solomon prays his prayer of dedication and they begin to um, celebrate, I think it was the Feast of Booths and so forth. Before we get there, these sacrifices have been made. And the text actually says that the glory of the Lord came into the building and there was a cloud in the building so that the priests couldn't do what they were supposed to do. The glory of God, the cloud was so thick. We watched that cloud in Ezekiel 9 and 10. It said actually the cloud of God, this, it's this image of the glory of God. And then 1 Kings chapter 8 says, and the glory of the Lord came and rested in the house of the Lord. So God actually comes in and perches himself on the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. So I think it's hard for us to grasp the significance of what we just read. If someone is an observant Jew, a righteous Jew, and they know that story of the glory of God in the temple, and then they read this, the, the, the depth of what has happened here, that the glory of God leaves and isn't coming back, really big deal. Now, the altar and the temple in the city are rebuilt. You go back to Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra comes, they rebuild the altar first, they pray and they dedicate the altar. Great. They begin the foundation of the temple. They start that and they dedicate the temple. And there's weeping and there's rejoicing all at the same time. And the people of God are being rededicated to God. But there's nothing in the book of Ezra about the glory of God returning to the temple. You go to the book of Nehemiah and Ezra is still there. But Nehemiah is building the city. And now the people of God are being rededicated to God. There's even this chapter that has this, this just beautiful image of the people of God have sort of rebuilt parts of the city. They're living in the city. And they all arrange this, this parade that comes from different corners of the city. And they make their way to the temple where Ezra reads the law and the people of God dedicate themselves to God. They get rid of the sin of their lives. And it's all beautiful stuff. None of it contains the language of the glory of God returning to the temple. None of it does. When does the presence of God return to earth? Emmanuel, God with us, right? This is actually part of God's plan. This is actually how God has described it to some of his prophets. Jeremiah chapter 31 Jeremiah 31, let's just read a couple of these verses. The new covenant that God is going to give his people. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34 say this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and they will be... And I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Flip over to Ezekiel chapter 11, the second half of Ezekiel 11. For all of the crazy things that are in Ezekiel, there's a few of these beautiful passages, like the second half of Ezekiel 11, verses 17 through 20. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come here, they will remove from it all of its detestable things and all its, abomin and all its ab abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So even in the midst of this exile and this turmoil and the Babylonian empire and the destruction of the temple and the judgment of God, God tells both of these prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I'm doing something different now. I'm going to establish a new covenant in the hearts of my people and I'm gonna give them a brand new spirit and they will be with me in an intimate way like they have never known before. And so it is the way the angel talks to Joseph about the birth of Jesus, the way the angel Gabriel talks to Mary about the birth of Jesus, right? Paul, even in 1 Corinthians 6, says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the whole image of the presence of God in his temple completely changes after this moment in Ezekiel chapter 10. The glory of God leaves because God is now doing something different with his covenant people. So let's take a quick look um, at the first section of Ezekiel chapter 11. Uh, Ezekiel chapter, the first few verses of Ezekiel chapter 11, God puts the smack down on the ruling elites. So this, this is what's happening in this passage. The ruling elites in Jerusalem believe that they are so important that they will be the ones who avoid all judgment from God or from Babylon. Now, they use these really strange metaphors that we don't understand, but that's what they're saying. And God is going to say to the ruling elite, as a matter of fact, you're the ones I'm getting rid of. That's what's happening in Ezekiel chapter 11. And in case you're not picking up what I'm putting down, Okay, Ezekiel chapter 11, <laughs> verse 1. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord. So the Spirit continues to lift this poor guy by his hair, and he takes him back to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. Now, something else strikes me about these passages. Ezekiel is seeing what is really happening. So he's seeing the Spirit of God. He sees this chariot. He sees the idolatry. He sees all of it. He hears the flapping of the wings of the cherub as loud as if God himself were speaking. And he's in a room. He's in a temple. He's in a courtyard where everyone else there worshiping these false gods don't hear or see a thing. Does that make sense? He sees it. It's all happening where these idolaters don't see or hear a thing. So the Spirit takes him back to the east gate. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men. So he sees 25 new people now. 
And I saw among them um, Jaazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatai, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. Prince is that is is it's ruler language. Um, so the, this is the ruling class in Jerusalem, the princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in the city. So they make up sin and they give such bad advice, we're going to discover that they've slaughtered tens of thousands of your own people. That's how bad these people are. Who say, okay, now this, this is the stuff that late at night in your devotional you think, I really wish my study Bible would explain this verse to me. <laughs> Who say, so the ruling elite say, the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. So here's, here's the metaphors. that they, they use two different metaphors. Now is not the time to build houses. So there's several explanations for that. The best explanation, I think, is that they believe that they are exempt from the destruction that is coming. So now is not the time to build another house or to worry about doing this or that, that where you are is going to be just fine. And they're speaking amongst themselves. Their belief is that they're going to avoid the judgment that is coming. And that's, um, that understanding is, is helped by what they say next. The city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. The word cauldron to us sounds like this is bad news because everyone's boiling to death. It's an image that Ezekiel actually uses another time or two. Uh, cauldron itself is not a bad thing. It's the, this is where stew is being made. And when they say we are the meat, what they're saying is, is we're not the stuff that gets boiled away. We're the stuff that you keep. We're the choice cuts of meat. We're not going to suffer from the judgment. The Babylonians aren't going to bother us. God is not going to bother us. He's forgotten us. We're the good stuff. So that's, that's the image that they're using here when they talk about the cauldron and the meat. And then God tells Ezekiel, I see it differently. So here's what you're going to tell him. Verse 5. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say thus, say, thus says the Lord. So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in the city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. So the princes of the people have been so bad that they have caused the deaths of thousands of their own people. Verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your now get this, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat in this city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. They're the choice cuts. They're the ones who have made it into my hands. That's the kind of thing that God is saying. You think you're all that in a bag of chips. You're the ones I'm getting rid of. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners, we put this together with the story of Jeremiah and the rulers of the nation of Judah in Jerusalem were positive that they were going to um, avoid all of this judgment and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgment upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. They will be exiled. 
and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. This is so important that we keep this kind of thing in mind when we talk about idolatry, when we talk about following after other gods. It's not just that now they pray to Marduk. It's not just now that they pray to Baal. Every one of those idols comes with a worldview. Every one of those idols comes with a pagan religion, a set of morality, an understanding of how the family works, an understanding of how culture works, an understanding of how economics works, an understanding of how you're supposed to raise and educate your children, even thousands of years ago in ancient Israel and Judah. They come with their own worldviews. And one of the reasons that worshiping those other gods is such bad news is it all contradicts the world that God has given them the law that God has given them, the way of life that God has given them. So to worship another God is to deny the way of life that God has given his people. And so here he says something like that, and you shall know that I am Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes nor obeyed my rules. This is what it means to worship other gods, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. And then every now and then this happens in the Old Testament, that as the prophet is speaking or as God is speaking to the prophet, someone just drops. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, one of those guys at the beginning of the chapter, the son of Benaiah, died. He's just, he's just gone. And here goes Ezekiel again. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God. Will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? So he's interceding again. He's praying again. Don't let the remnant disappear. Don't take us off the face of the earth, but hold, hold the remnant of your people. Don't let them all disappear. So the prophet's still interceding for the people of God, even at a moment like this. Leadership ruling is such a big deal to God in the devising of iniquity and the shedding of the blood of his own people is cause for profound judgment on the part of God, okay? This vision completes itself, and this is where we'll pick up next time so that we can do, do it justice, and then we'll scoot our way into another section of Ezekiel, I think. But this new heart and this new spirit that God is gonna give his people this heart of stone, this heart of rebellion, this heart of perpetual disobedience to God. God says, what I am going to do is I'm going to take that out of them and I'm going to give them a new heart of flesh so that now they can actually obey me and follow me. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again for this time together tonight for your word and all that is here for us. Help us, God, to see it and understand it. Father, to not just understand the, the text itself and the words, but to understand what you're saying. To understand, Father, how you see things. Somehow, by your grace, our eyes and spirits would be open to what is actually going on. 
We see, Father, with our fleshly eyes and our fleshly minds what is going on in the world around us and the temptation and the difficulties that we face. And, uh, Father, just so much that goes on around us that we have to pay attention to. But give us eyes like Ezekiel's. Give us eyes like your servants, the prophets, that we would understand these things through the lenses of what God is up to, of your righteousness, of your holiness, of the law that you have given us, of the covenant that you have established through your son, Jesus Christ. That, Father, that's the way that we would begin to understand what happens around us, what happens in our families, what happens in our communities. So, that, Father, we can work well. We can pray well. We can walk as righteous people. We can, like Ezekiel, even intercede for those around us well. Give us those kinds of eyes and give us those kinds of hearts. We pray all these things in your magnificent name, in your name. Amen. Amen.